Galatians 4 and verse 1. Paul says, what I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, he is subject to guardians and trustees. Or if in our terminology today, we might talk about custodians or tutors. Until the time set by his father. Now, what I want to do as, as we walk into our discussion this morning is, I want to just kind of introduce my topic this morning by touching base on the discussion we had at the beginning of our sermon last week. And that is that the topic of the fatherhood of God, us being sons and daughters of God, is a topic that is at some levels fraught with confusion because many of us in our personal experience had models that were inadequate or ineffective. And I think at one level, we need to say this. We need to say that every son or daughter's relationship to their father on the human level is at some level flawed. The reflection that we intend to give of God's love and character and grace at some level is inadequate because we are affected by sin. So everyone has experienced at some level a, a, a fallenness or a brokenness in every relationship in life, particularly in the relationship between a child and their father. However, even in the case where there has been major difficulty and struggle in that relationship, does that mean that the individual okay, who has experienced hardship and struggle in their father-child relationship, does it mean that they are incapable of grasping God's fatherly love and affection for them? That's the question I want to put before you. Okay, And I think J.I. Packer argues something like this. He says, the person who has experienced a deeply flawed and broken relationship with their earthly father needs to look at God as their father in contrast. Okay, he is the father who doesn't let them down, who isn't abusive, who isn't judgmental, who isn't critical, but who loves them unconditionally and seeks to serve them and meet their needs and bring security into their life. So as we wrestle with the topic of being sons and daughters of God, we look at our personal experience with our dads. Some have to say flawed at some level. Some have to say deeply flawed to the point of personal pain. Okay, you need to look at God in this way. See Him as the Father who is in contrast to the fallenness that you experience, and then you will begin to, I think, gain clarity and insight into who He is. He is the Father in contrast to all human or fallen fathers. He, therefore, is the Father that you have always needed, wanted, but perhaps have never had. Okay, so He is, in a sense, clarified when He is seen in contrast. All the negatives that you can bring up about that relationship with your father, see it in contrast. Flip it over and say, if my earthly father was like this, God my father in heaven is like this. Okay, so see it in contrast and it will help to magnify the truth about who God is in our lives. Now, the other thing I want to touch on is in verses 1 and 2, it's, it's an interesting passage of Scripture that is very difficult for us to understand. Okay, and I want to just try to try to clarify uh, kind of what this means, okay? The thrust in verses 1 to do basically is this. A minor, okay, a person too young to control money has come into a lot of money. That's the picture or illustration. But he is not, he is not able, he is not allowed, based on restrictions, to enjoy the full use of that 
plentiful resource that he owns. He's the master of it, he's the owner of it, but he does not yet have the right to exercise his authority over it to enjoy its benefits. Okay? Until the time comes when he's old enough and the custodian or the trustee releases the resources to him and then he enjoys the fullness of that wealth. Now, if a child comes to the age of adulthood, which many will argue in, in, in this time period between 14 and 18 years old, if when they got to that point, they still refused to enjoy the benefits of the resources that were provided for them because they were still wanting to live under the tutor, the custodian, or the trustee, you would say that's somewhat strange. Because what are they doing? They're living like a slave in the household. And so what the text says is that this child, who though he owns everything, is no different than a slave when he is too young to exercise his rights. But once he comes of age, once the time to exercise his rights come, to exercise his rights comes, what should he do? He should begin to enjoy the benefits of what has been provided for him. Okay? Now here's Paul's basic argument. In the Old Testament, God gave laws, rules, and regulations that restricted freedom and pointed us forward to our need of Christ. When Christ comes... Those restrictions and regulations that pointed forward are set aside. They no longer restrict our behavior. We are free from them and now enjoy a relationship with God as our father, not as a slave. Okay? So the argument that Paul is going to be making ultimately is moving into verses 4 and 5, and that is we receive adoption as sons. And in that sonship, there is a new degree of freedom in our relationship and experience of God by the Spirit. So this morning, my, the title of my discussion is, th is this. No longer slaves, but sons. Okay, we have moved out of that youthful state where this future inheritance could be ours. We don't have it yet. We have moved into the realm where we are given all of these blessings and we are to enjoy them. Okay, and Paul's argument is basically going to be this. Legalism will kill the joy of your relationship with God as your Father. And freedom in Christ will allow you to realize that I have been given in Jesus abundant blessings that will inform and to encourage my daily experience with Him. So in the story, the Old Testament believer is the young master. The law is the custodian. When Jesus comes, freedom comes. And the fuller enjoyment of the blessings. So it's simply a picture from salvation history. Old Testament believers enjoy blessings in God. New Testament believers enjoy greater blessings in God. Because in the Old Testament, Israel did not see God as their father. They saw him as their Lord, as their master. But they did not refer to him as father. The term father is brought in salvation history through the person of Christ, who in the Garden of Gethsemane calls out and says what? Abba, Father. Who in the Lord's Prayer taught his people to pray. When you pray, say, Our Father. Okay, a new relationship. Okay, that is not based on regulations, but that is based on love. So as we move through this text, let's begin in verse 3 then with this little bit of a backdrop. Verse 3, he says, So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. What I'm going to do is walk through three words. The first one is bondage, which speaks of our past condition. Okay, and that's what he's talking about in verse 3. The second thought will be redemption, which is the ground of our adoption. And then thirdly, I want to look at adoption, our new status. 
and the benefits and experiences that come to us in Jesus through the new birth. So let's first, first of all look at this idea of bondage, our past condition. I think last Sunday we touched on the fact that before God, we had two statuses. If you flip over to Ephesians chapter 2, just forward one or two pages. Ephesians 2, this is what the Word of God says about our bondage. It says, as for you, you were dead in transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So in the past, what was our relationship with God? We were in bondage. We were rebels. We were sons of wrath. We were John 8, 44, under the control of our father, the devil. That's our our state status of bondage. Also, Galatians 4.3 says that we were in slavery. Under the law and condemned by it, also under the sway of the evil one. In verse 3, he also references the basic principles of the world. Okay, and two thoughts emerge here. Okay, in the pagan world, people were in bondage to fear of gods, in plural. Okay, they had pagan deities. Okay, in Judaism, what was the bondage? The bondage was the legalism that was promoted by the religious establishment. Legalism that said, if you want affection and love from God, you have to perform and do certain things. Okay? Because that's basically what legalism says. It says, if you want His love, you must serve God like a slave. You can relate to Him as a father. Now, it's that presupposition and status of bondage that Paul is seeking to confront. What he's going to say is something like this. Paganism, worldly religious ways, and legalism, okay, which was the Judaism of the day, both prevented people from enjoying God's love. Okay, both produced bondage. Because most of the offerings that were given to, God, to the gods, pagan gods, were given to appease their wrath. To keep them from being mad at you. And so the person who lived under those gods lived in fear. And that fear is what Paul is calling slavery. Same thing is true for the Jews who were living under the law once freedom in Christ had come. Both legalism and paganism deprived people of their freedom in Jesus Christ. They deprived them of the work of Christ. And, and here, here's what's interesting. This picture of slavery, if you look back into the Old Testament, you find perhaps the clearest picture of redemption from slavery in the book of Exodus, right? Israel is called the Son of God, the nation. Not the individuals, but the nation is called the Son of God. And so, in the book of Hosea 11 and verse 1, here's what God says. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Okay, so the nation of Israel is called out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of slavery, into what? A new relationship where God the Father in heaven assumes responsibility for the nation as a whole. And the, here's the picture. Okay? Israel in Egypt was enslaved and in bondage. Okay, when they come out into the wilderness, what are they experiencing? They're experiencing freedom from slavery that they endured in Egypt and a new relationship with God, with them as a nation, as their father. Okay? So... Our relationship with God is that in sin, we're in slavery. We're in bondage. 
Israel becomes a picture of our redemption, of our freedom, and of our coming under God's protection and under God's provision. Now, what was Israel, this son of God, like? Okay, Psalm 106 verse 7 says this, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, by the sea at the Red Sea. Okay, this is fascinating to me. Okay, Israel is delivered by God from slavery. They come to their first obstacle, and by the Red Sea, what do they do? They throw a temper tantrum. Against who? Against the Father who had delivered them from slavery and had made them sons. They were set free from their bondage of the past, and yet they wrestled with this new freedom and what it meant. Okay? So the picture in verse 3 is, we were formerly, when we were children, we were in slavery, just like Israel was, under the basic principles of the world, which is religious systems. Therefore, our adoption is from bondage. That is, it is from a seriously bad situation. God's love bridged the gap and overcome our many and enormous obstacles. Okay, and that's, isn't that exactly what He does for Israel? They're in Egypt. He overcomes the obstacles that are prohibiting freedom for them. He breaks them free from slavery. So the first picture that emerges in this text is a picture of bondage. Some of that bondage... Those that were born again were continuing in that bondage. They were not enjoying the freedom that they had in Christ and were trying to go back, either the Gentiles in the church in Galatia, to pagan philosophies, fear of gods, and some of the Jewish believers were seeking to go back to law-keeping. So in chapter 3 and verse 1, Paul will say something like this. He says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose very eyes Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified? Okay, who's bewitched you? Who's taking you back to the weak principles that can't give freedom? Who's binding you with guilt? That's the idea. Freedom is found in Christ. So the first picture is our past condition, bondage. The second picture emerges in one of the more familiar texts from the New Testament beginning in verse 4. Okay, so when you were children, you were in slavery. Picture of bondage. But, Okay, now here's the transition or contrast. When the fullness of time came, what happened? God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem them under the law, that we might receive full rights as sons. So the first picture, bondage. Second picture is redemption. Okay, what is redemption? Okay, redemption is what happened to Israel when God, through the Passover lambs, paid the price, and delivered His people. Okay, He brought them out of bondage through a vehicle. That vehicle was called His redeeming love, His redeeming power, and His redeeming work. For us, how does this picture of redemption, this freedom from slavery, how does it work out? Two simple thoughts. Redemption is God intervening by His Son. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son. Charles Haddon Spurgeon captures this thought in this way. He says, speaking of God's initiative, God sent forth His Son. He says, I do not find the world moving in repentance towards the Lord, but the Lord 
towards us. I do not find the world in repentance seeking after its maker. No, but the offended God, himself in infinite compassion, broke the silence and came forth to bless his enemies. He broke the silence and acted. How? By sending his son. Okay? So, bondage, redemption through the Savior, God, intervening by His Son. And when did it happen? It happened at the time that God, in His infinite wisdom, had said. And I want you to notice a couple of things about Jesus that draw connections between us and Him. Okay, just real quickly look at this. Verse 4. He sent forth His Son, born of a woman, that is in humanity, born under the law, that is required to fulfill its demands, to redeem those that were under the law, that we might receive the full right or adoption as sons. Okay? So follow the picture very quickly. Okay? Because apart from God sending His Son, we are still in bondage. Redemption sets us free from bondage and brings us into this new relationship of adoption. Jesus came to be like us, born of a woman. He was born under the law. The law applies to Him. And then He is unlike us in a very unique and specific way. Okay, what did Jesus do that, that none of us do? Okay, what did he do that none of us do? He always lived under the demands of God's law and did it perfectly. He lived as a man free from sin. Why? So that then in his physical body, he could go to the cross, one who was tempted in every way like we are yet without sin, and on that cross bear the consequence of our sin and pay the price, the freedom price, for us. Okay, so what we deserve from God, judgment, death, and wrath in our bondage. What does God do? He moves in our direction. He takes the initiative, establishes with us a relationship in which we can be fully and finally forgiven. This is, in the Bible, I believe, the clearest description and clearest evidence of God's love. He, in verse 5 of Galatians 4, it says this. It says that He came, Jesus, to redeem those that were under the law so that we might receive the full right of sons. So God intervened by sending His Son, and then God purchased us by His Son. What does redeem mean? Okay, what does redeem mean? Redeem means to buy back, to set free from the market, slave market, by the payment of a freedom price. So what does God do? God finds us in bondage. What is the cost to get us out of bondage and death? It is death. What does Jesus do? He dies on the cross to pay the price for our sin. And He makes a payment that sets us free from bondage through something that the Bible in this text is calling redemption. Now the question that comes up is this. How costly was the price of my freedom? Okay, how expensive was it to pay the price that would deliver me from what I deserve, the wrath and judgment of God and my bondage? Galatians 3 and verse 13. If you just look back one chapter, I think you'll see this very clearly. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. That is what we deserve. How did He do it? He became a curse 
for us. Okay? Now, here's the idea. He became a curse for the benefit of, for the deliverance of, for the ransom of us. How? He took our place on the cross. He became a sinless human being and died in the place of who? Sinful human beings. That's why Galatians 3, Paul is saying this, He became a curse for us because cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Why? Because to be on a tree in the time of Rome was to be a criminal dying, paying the price for your rebellion. Did Jesus have any rebellion? No. Then whose rebellion was he paying for? Whose freedom price was he paying? Mine. He became a curse for us. That is the high price of redemption. J.I. Packer says it this way. He says, here we encounter the deepest insight into God's love. When you look at the cross and realize that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, saw you in your bondage and God the Father sent His Son to become a curse for you so that you might be redeemed. He pays the freedom price and He sets you free. And you know what He doesn't want you to do? He doesn't want you to go back into slavery to the law. He wants you to enjoy all the full rights of sonship. He doesn't want you to be in the realm of blessing, acting like I can't exercise the rights of blessing. You know what he's saying? Write the check to God. Okay? Enjoy the blessings of the things that God has given you. Enjoy fellowship with Him. Enjoy worshiping Him. Don't be bound into fear and bondage of legalism or of mysticism, which was the case in the time of Paul's writing. He's saying live in freedom. God has overcome through His Son, Jesus Christ. And I believe this with all my heart. I think it is this truth that God came in flesh and bore the price for my sin that is what sets biblical Christianity apart from every world religion. God sent His Son. Why? Because religious effort can never set me free from my sin and from the judgment that I deserve. But God, through His Son, Jesus Christ, has borne the full consequence of my sin. So there is no condemnation remaining. It's why Romans 8.1 then becomes such a precious verse. There is no condemnation to those who are aware in Christ Jesus. Why? Because He became a curse for us. Bore the consequence of our sin away. And the result that we experience is indeed glorious. Now, I think the thing that I have to emphasize is this. If you go back up into chapter 3 of Galatians, verse 26, you find out how this redemption price is applied or put into effect. Okay, some would say it's put into effect by personal religious effort. Paul would say, absolutely not. Verse 26 of chapter 3. He says, you are all sons of God. How? Through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, what does that say? What it says is, I make no contribution to my redemption. I don't, it's not like Jesus did his bit and now I do my bit. I add to it. No. If you believe that, you are going back to the first stage of bondage. Thinking that I have to do things to get God's affection. I have to do things to get God to love me. I have to do things to get God to hear me. Not true. You have access to God because of what Jesus Christ did in spite of your sin. He paid the full price. This is the uniqueness of biblical Christianity. This is the essence 
of God's love. That redemption for us is free. John chapter 1 and verse 12 says, But as many as received Him, Jesus, He gives the right to become what? Sons and daughters of God, even to those who what? Believe on His name. Okay, Jesus pays the price. Redemption. What is the response that God calls for from us? He wants us simply to believe that our relationship with Him is based wholly and completely on the work of Jesus Christ, His Son, on Calvary's cross. And then we can sing, No condemnation, now I dread. Okay, so we move from bondage through redemption into the third phase. And the third phase, described in this text, is we receive the full rights of sons. Look at verse 5, if you will. It says, Jesus came to redeem those under the law so that we might receive the full right of sons. And I think some of your translations there are going to say, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Okay, now this, is, this text is at the heart of what we mean when we say, in salvation and in redemption, we are freed from bondage and we are brought into the family of God. We are not religious performers who are seeking to earn God's favor. Okay, we are sons and daughters who by the result of new birth have been brought into a new dynamic, into a new relationship of affection, love, and protection from God. And folks, that is freedom. Okay, that is freedom. That my performance does not ever merit the love of God. So what are some aspects of this new status that we have made no contribution to, but that we experience because of God's justifying grace by faith alone in Christ alone? What is, uh, what are the blessings that come? And I'll just list for you four. One is, we are part of a new family. In verse 3, in verse 7, and verse 8, you'll find this word used. Verse 3, it says, we were in slavery. Verse 7, so you are no longer a slave. Verse 8, formerly when you did not know God, you were slaves. Okay? So in Christ, what do I have? I have freedom from bondage and from slavery, and I have become part of a new Family, I have a new identity. We are adopted. That is, we have full rights as sons and daughters of God. Wayne Grudem defines adoption like this. He says, adoption is an act of God whereby He makes us members of His family. Okay? If you go ahead to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19, you'll find this very beautiful and powerful statement. He says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, people at a distance, but you are fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's own household. Folks, the new family that we have become part of means that we have with each other a relationship as brothers and sisters and as sons and daughters of God. So that in Christ, we have become part of a new and glorious family. Therefore, one, one writer says this. He says, adoption is the greatest insight into the greatest, or I'm sorry, it is the greatest insight into the greatness of God's love. He goes on to say this. He says, your understanding of Christianity cannot be any greater than your understanding of adoption. Now think about that. Your understanding of Christianity 
cannot be any greater than your understanding of adoption. Which is to say what? If you don't understand that you are sons and daughters of God, you are still flirting on the edges of slavery and bondage. God does not want you in His house as a slave. He wants you in His house as a son and daughter of His. He wants you to experience the full right of being part of His family. To be right with the judge, one writer said, is a great thing. To be loved and cared for by the Father is greater still. We are sons and daughters of God. Let the truth of adoption, this new status, this idea of being family, let that sink in, which moves us on to the next thought, verse 6. He says, because you are sons. Okay, so you receive this full right of sonship that is immediate access, etc., etc. I thought of this, when I I thought of this this right as sons and daughters, I, I thought of what happens when my cell phone rings, okay? Um, most of the time I'll answer but if I'm involved in something I'm doing something I'm meeting with someone a lot of times I'll let it go and then I'll try to call the person back but I've noticed that I there are a couple of calls that I have a hard time letting go okay one of them is from my wife and the other one is from my three daughters okay it's just when they call The immediate thought on my mind is, I have a responsibility for them. I care about them. I wonder what they need. And the impulse in my heart is, since they have called, they, because of my relationship with them by birth, not by my choice, but by birth, because God's God's relationship with us is different. He chose us. Okay? By birth, I am responsible for those three girls. And when my phone rings and I see one of their names pop up, it it, it goes up on the priority list. Okay? Because you have a relationship with God as sons and daughters, guess what? You have the right to come to Him and to access His presence and to seek His blessings and benefits. And because you are sons and daughters, what is He? He is inclined to respond to your need. Why? Because He brought you out of slavery and has taken responsibility for you. That's why it was so foolish for Israel when they were freed from bondage out of Egypt. I called my son. God wanted them to know that He had taken personal responsibility for their deliverance and for their success. And what did they do? They acted just like we tend to act. They tended to doubt the love of God. They tended to doubt the protection of God and the provision of God. Now in verse 6, Paul takes this whole discussion a little bit deeper. He says, in adoption, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. And this is, so we're adopted and then the Spirit of God comes. And what is He doing? He comes into our hearts. He is the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. In the original language, it's in the present tense. He is continually speaking to the Father on behalf of His children. He is Internally, in every believer doing what? He is prompting a deeper, more intimate relationship with the Father. He, the Father, loves when the Spirit of God prompts you to call out to Him. And the word here is fascinating. It's not an infant simply asking for something. The word is krodzo. It means the Spirit comes crying out on behalf of, 
speaking from the pain that we experience in, in our world, speaking from our sin and our brokenness, saying this individual needs help. He prompts us to call God, Daddy, Father. And the primary picture, at, at one level, it's, it's the infancy of a child to a parent. But at the deeper level, it's really a picture of intimacy. God sends forth the Spirit of His Son. That is the Spirit who the Son promised in John chapter 14 through 16 and then Acts chapter 1. He said, you guys, wait here in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes. And when He comes, He will change your life. Okay, now here's the blessing. Okay, because you are sons, God has sent forth His Spirit into your heart. And what do we become as a result of that? 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19. We become temples of the Holy Ghost who is in us that we have from God and we are not our own. Why? Because we were bought with the price. And what is that Spirit of God who takes up residence in us doing? He is crying out and engaging us in a relationship with Father in Heaven. That is the experience of every true believer. That the Spirit is prompting a cry from your heart. Go to God. Go to God for help. Why? Because He is your Father. And he prompts this very beautiful cry that is strong and continual. It is a cry that assures us of our sonship, of the privileges, of the boldness, of the unashamedness with which we should come to God. He is the evidence that God loves you. And He is the cause of our coming to Him, as Ephesians 3 and verse 12 says, with great boldness. Listen to what Ephesians 3 and 12 says. It says, in Him, Jesus, and through faith in Him, we may approach God, and listen to this, with freedom and confidence. Okay? Why? Because the Spirit comes, and you know what He does? He tells us in our struggles, and in our trials, and in our fears, He says, go to God. Why? Abba. He is your and so the Spirit of God is doing what? He is constantly prompting you as you seek to drift away in sin and in fear and in despair. The Spirit of God is prompting you to come back towards God and to cry out to Him and say, Father. And Paul says, because He is present, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. One thing I have noticed with my daughters is they're not afraid to ask for help. They're not afraid to ask for things. But I've also found this to be amazing. I could say to my daughters, hey, before you drive home from college this Friday, okay, this Friday they're coming home, before you drive home, call Mr. Allen, who is a man who's taking responsibility for them out there as an, as an adult kind of mentor and friend of theirs. Why don't you call Mr. Allen and have him check the oil in your car and the tire pressure? Guess what my daughter's response to that is? Very different, okay? Then their response to me is, they, you know what they feel? They feel reluctance. Why? He's not her dad. Well, we don't want to impose on him. We don't have any problem imposing on me. Okay, well, what's the difference? The difference is the relationship. Right? That's the difference. They don't have that same degree of intimacy and understanding that when I call out to him, he will protect and he will provide. They don't have that same, they, they love this guy and he's been very gracious to him, but he's not their dad. Okay, the Spirit of God does what? He comes into your heart and He is prompting this natural, bold, confident cry. That's the way Paul sees it. Because Christ's love has been shed abroad in your heart. You cry out with boldness and confidence. You go to Him. Why? He delivered you from bondage. He redeemed you from your sin. And He's given you the status of sons and status of family. And He is now your Father. And He has put someone in you who reminds you of that relationship. 
I'm often troubled by the fact that we drift in fear. That we struggle in sin. Because we don't heed the cry of the Spirit that says, Abba, Father. It is possible for us as Christians to become less aware of the cry that comes from the Spirit because it can be obscured by sin, fear. And we, over time, can grow insensitive. Legalism can make us insensitive to the call of the Spirit of God because we think that our relationship with God is being maintained by our performance. But the Spirit of God is saying, no, it is maintained by redeeming grace and by the shed blood of Christ every time you own your sin and and, and confess it. The voice of indwelling sin, the daily struggle can be very loud and it can drown out the voice of the Spirit of God. Listen to Him. When He prompts you to go to the Father, go. Be responsive to the call of God. The voice of condemnation, guilt that many people carry from their past, that haunting, that cry of condemnation, drowns out the cry of the Spirit. You know what we need to do? One writer put it this way. He said, we need to get noise-canceling headphones, okay, that are tuned into the voice of the Spirit of God and that drown out the voices of condemnation, the the tendency or temptation towards legalism, the issue of indwelling sin, that drowns that out because Satan loves to play havoc in your mind, speaking fear and doubt. And the Spirit of God comes saying what? Abba, Father, what is that? You are sons of God. You are daughters of God. You don't need to live in slavery. I have come to set you free. Now, folks, get over the struggle. Listen to the voice of the Spirit. Put on the headphones of biblical truth. Quote to yourself these truths. Go to Ephesians 2, verse 13. We come with boldness and confidence. Hebrews, therefore let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may find help in our time of need. You know who's prompting you to go there? The Spirit of God. He drives you in that direction. He longs to see you free. What voice are you most aware of? What voice do you most appreciate and meditate upon? Listen to the voice of the cry of the Spirit who assures us of God's love. And then just two quick thoughts and I'll just wrap this up quickly. We also have a new future. Verse 7. Just notice what he says. He says, So you, because the Spirit cries out, Abba, Father, you are no longer a slave. So what is it saying? The indwelling Spirit who calls out to God as Father, is evidence of what? Conversion. He's evidence of redemption. He calls out, and if He is calling out, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and since you are a son. And notice what He does. He goes from the plural to what in verse 7? He goes from sons of God in verse 6 to son and daughter of God. What is he doing? He is simply personalizing the relationship and the blessings and benefits. He says, if you are a son, you are also an heir with God. What does that mean? In Christ, the third thing we have in adoption is a future. And being an heir implies that what is to come is not the result of our achievement, but is the result of grace. Okay, an heir does not earn their inheritance. They receive it. And what is he saying? If the Spirit of God is in you, you have had your entire future completely transformed. You have things coming in your direction in the future that will defy explanation. Okay, the hope of heaven. So you are an heir to something that is more glorious and permanent and excelling and beautiful than anything on this planet. Here's the way Peter says it. This inheritance is kept by God in heaven for you. 
And the Spirit of God comes to assure us of that. To say, you are my sons and daughters, and because you're my sons and daughters, I have provided for your future. And that provision is free. It is utterly and completely free. And it is evident of God's amazing and glorious love. The blessings of God are now enjoyed, yes. But the blessings of the future will amaze us. We are assured and secured in this future blessing that is found in Christ. The result is there is no fear. Romans 8.34, here's what Paul says. He said, who shall separate us from the love of God? And then Paul goes into that glorious golden chain. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Okay, we are secure. Why? We have this future. We are heirs. And then the last thing I'll say to you is this. We are free. We have a new family. We have a new father. We have a new future. And we have a new freedom. Now friends, I just say this to you very quickly this morning. Before Christ, verse 8 says, we were slaves. And he goes on to describe things that talk about pagan worship and moralism or Judaism. Attempts to maintain the favor of God through performance, through personal effort. The temptation that we face is to drift into legalism. That is, seeking to earn God's forgiveness and acceptance through what we do rather than through Christ's death. And what Paul says in chapter 2, if you, if you just want to write this down and go back to it a little bit later, verse 21, Paul says, if your relationship with God, your sonship with God, is secured by your religious performance, then the death of Christ was utterly and completely unnecessary. And what Paul is saying is, I don't think it was unnecessary. I think it was absolutely essential to our new relationship with God. So, the temptation of legalism, to seek to earn God's forgiveness and acceptance by law-keeping. You know what that is? That's going back to bondage. Paul's saying, your sons and daughters, you relate to God because of His affection and love, not because of how good your day was. And legalism also does this. It doubts that Christ alone is sufficient for salvation. And folks, this gets to the heart of it. It doubts that Christ death alone, His becoming a curse for us, is sufficient and adequate payment for the totality of our sin. If you go back into chapter 3, it's just, it just becomes so clear that Christ paid the full price of our sin. And Paul's warning is, those that rely on observing the law for forgiveness will find themselves in bondage. Because the law was never meant to save us from our sin. If you look real quickly at verse 24 of chapter 3, he says this. He says, the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. Some translations, I think the King James said it this way. The law is a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. That is, the more I try to keep the law, what do I realize? I realize how sinful I really am and how desperate I am in need of God's redeeming grace and forgiveness through Jesus. The law is a schoolmaster to point us to Christ, to point us to this new freedom that is found in Him, that in Him all of our sin that has been paid. The law was never meant to save from sin, but to point us to our desperate need and to God's glorious grace. So as we conclude, we say this, no matter how ugly your past, freedom from sin is found only in the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. You make no contribution to it. The work of God brings freedom now. John 8.36, Jesus said this. He said, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. If the Son sets you free, you are really free. Live in that freedom. Don't let Satan bind you in guilt and condemnation. What is forgiven is forgiven. The sin that's present in your life, confess it. Break its bondage in the power of the name and shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so Paul can hold out hope in verse 1 of chapter 5. He says, it is for freedom that Christ set you free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery, by moralism or mysticism or legalism. Don't let those things grab your attention and cause you to feel guilty. The law is there, but so is grace. Be free in the power of God. In verse 16 of Galatians 5, he says, I say, live by the Spirit, who is crying, Abba, Father. And what will happen? You will not be bound in the gratification of the flesh. You know what it's saying? That new freedom is freedom from slavery to sin. If you are truly a child of God's, there is hope for victory over the most stubborn pattern of sin that is present in your life. And it is found in the power of Christ. The Savior who redeemed you is the Savior who desires to sanctify you by the work of His Spirit. You must determine to live by the Spirit. What pattern of sin, what slavery, what addiction in your life does God want to break by His Spirit? I think that's the question we have to ask. You're His son and daughter. He will do everything in His power to set you free. And He has set forth His Spirit into your heart to make sure that that freedom is sustained. And that Spirit cries out for help from the Father. Because the goal of our salvation is progress and victory, not perfection. Okay, that will come a glorification. The goal of God's work in our heart as sons and daughters is that we would begin to experience, as His children, progress in our daily experience. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. If any man is in Christ... He is a new creation. He is a son, a daughter of God. Old things are passing away. Everything is becoming new. That's why the Spirit comes. To break the power of canceled sin. And so the hymn writer would say, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. Alive in Him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Therefore, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. God wants to set you free. He makes you His sons and daughters. And He helps you to live a life that will be for His glory. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ, I want to tell you that there is hope for freedom from bondage because Christ died to set you free. If you're here this morning and you know Christ, would you trust Him today to set you free as His son and as His daughter? Father, we want to thank You for Your Word this morning.